One Hope Church. So whether you have your print Bible, your iPhone, Android, what other device you may have, 1 Samuel 25, or you can listen along as I read it, and um, we're going to um, just continue to roll through this this morning. There's a lot of really good stuff um, in this passage, and so just want to hop right into it. Um, so let's just read and talk about the first verse for a minute, and then we'll pray and continue on, because there's a little, this first verse is kind of set apart from the rest of the passage. Verse um, 1 of chapter 25 says, Then Samuel died. Then Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel died. Now we have to remember in the story as we go back to the beginning um, of the book, you know, the time that's ha- what's happened so far. We remember that before you get to the book of 1 Samuel, you have the book of the judges. So you have these judges um, who rise up um, to bring justice um, to Israel, usually by leading them to victory over an oppressive um, enemy. Um, you know, that happens you know, always in the book of Judges um, after there's been a repentance of sin from the people. Then God brings up a judge, a deliverer, who you know, frees them. And then that judge judges for a period of time, and there's a period of peace. And then the people, the next genera- you know, the people in that generation or even the next generation fall back into sin. And then the pattern continues. When Samuel comes onto the scene, he's really the last of the judges, and he's a prophet. And he's a priest. He has like these he, multiple roles, just like Jesus had multiple roles, right? So we understand that Jesus is the one with like all the roles, <laughs> you know, the, you know that, that can do everything, who can be the priest and the sacrifice. You know, Samuel couldn't do that. Samuel was limited in a way that Jesus is not limited, but still Samuel was so important. He's the last of the judges. He's a prophet. He, he's the one that is, is the transition as the people ask for a king and God gives them what they desired with a significant warnings about how things would be different. So they should mourn. They should mourn because Samuel was a great and godly man um, who led them well. They should mourn at losing him. Um, he still, you know, was, was still interceding for the nation in prayer. He was still giving counsel um, and wisdom to those who would seek it. And they should also lament for him because they had rejected his advice about a king and what that would mean for them. Because in that, they were saying, we'd rather have a king than have you talk to God and tell us what to do. They should lament and mourn um, for, for what they have done. Um, and so they do. And then it says, And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Par. And now 
There's a couple different ways to look at this, and maybe it's a combination of these things. You know, why did he go to the wilderness, you know, when Samuel dies? Perhaps he needs to go and, you know, he was close to Samuel. Perhaps he needs to go and to mourn um, apart from other people. He's seeking solitary, a solitary environment for his mourning. Um, perhaps as well, he now doesn't have Samuel's help and protection, and he feels a little bit more threatened by Saul. Yet that one is a little bit touch and go because we also know, like, David knows what he's been promised by God. Okay, so I don't want to go too far into that one. But there's times, you know, when in our lives where we, we know something spiritually to be true, but yet we still make a different decision in our flesh, even if it's a temporary decision, out of fear, anxiety, stress, whatever it is. You know, we, we expect, especially the characters in the Bible, especially when they know a truth of God, to be 100% consistent with that truth. But that's a bit unrealistic in terms of what we expect of ourselves and what we know of the human condition. It's like, you know, are, are you on point with God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year, all the years of your life? But when we read the biblical characters, you read somebody like David, and that's our expectation of him. We expect David to get it right every single time and to have no fear ever on any day or any hour. We do that a lot to biblical characters, and the only one who passes the test on all of that is Jesus himself. All others fall short, whether you see it or not, whether their failures are explicitly talked about in the scripture or not. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse. We don't use that and say, well, if they couldn't get it right all the time, how am I expected to get it right all the time? Well, well, I do want us to consider one thing important here. We have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than the people in the Old Testament did. So we actually have God indwelling us on a permanent basis if you are a follower of Jesus. So the access to victory is always there. So we have a different, there's a different level of expectation for us. At the same time, even with all the advantage we have, because we have no lack of knowledge or no lack of access to knowledge. And we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. So we have far less excuse, yet we judge them more harshly. And we still fall and we fail. And that's human. However, we have to put some parameters on that. There's the, the, the failings that happen to us, what we call them normal failings in our weakness. There are intentional failings when we intend not to be prepared spiritually so that we can fail. Those, those are grievous. And that doesn't even have to do as much with the nature of the sin itself as the heart going into it. The intention to sin. The intention to be unprepared for the spiritual battle. What do I mean by that? 
you know, if there's an intention of the heart of like, I'm not going to read the scripture today because I want to do X later and that's going to convict me and I'm not going to be able to do X later, that's grievous. That's grievous. And that X could be a small thing. But it's still grievous because that's the intention of the heart. That's different than you're in the what we would call the wrong place at the wrong time unintentionally. See, a lot of people are in the wrong place at the wrong time intentionally. You know, well, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, really? So you were at her house at 1 a.m. and didn't expect anything would happen. You're just at the wrong place at the wrong time? Come on. That's not unintentional. You know, you didn't just like get teleported there. You know, you're just like, whoop, I'm in somebody else's house. It's 1 a.m. That's, that's not how that works. That, we haven't gotten that far in our technology with that where people can just teleport other random people around and put them in places where they shouldn't be. So you can't use that. But we have um, responsibility. We need, and this has been true in every generation, every generation that we see through the scriptures and past that into you know, history, past Jesus' death and resurrection, we have responsibility. And so now, let's continue into the rest of this, and let's just go to the Lord in prayer with that on our hearts, and just ask God, God, we just come to you and we just ask that you would um, purify our hearts this morning. Remove all the clutter, all the fog of sin, all the junk from our hearts and minds that we might see you clearly. Might see the truth of your scripture clearly. Might see your power clearly. And God, that you would help us. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Verse 2, it says, There was a man of Moan, Maon, I should say Maon, whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. How rich was he? He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So now we have this contrast in verses 2 and 3. I just want to stop here for a minute and talk about this. Abigail, who is wise and beautiful, and Nabal, who is harsh and does evil. Now how did the two of them get together? I mean, that's the first thing I asked when I saw this. It's like, how does this beautiful, intelligent, you know, wise woman end up with this evil and harsh man? Well, that's probably correct. Arranged marriage is common in those days. It's not necessarily the way it always happened. You know, we want to look at a culture and just be like, this is the way this thing always happens. Well, even in a culture where that's how things normally happen, it's not how it always happens. So we have to be careful, but it's common in these days. This thing's for arranged marriage. And perhaps Nabal, though his, ma- his name 
has something, like you could at least make a connotation towards foolishness in the man's name itself, which is kind of odd. Um, so like, there was your big warning call, like the dude's name, okay? But perhaps his character flaws were well hidden by himself and by his family, and so her family thought it was a good idea, and you know she th- agreed that that would be a good idea, and they got married. Now there is something with the arranged marriages. I want to be, I want to say something about this because we see this in the scripture as well. And, and there's um, cultures that do this even today, where the parents say, "We would like you two to meet and talk and see if there is commonality." Okay, and if that could be something. There's that type of arranged marriage. There's another type of arranged marriage. Is just like the parents just say, you and you, and the, and the young people don't have a choice. In the scripture, when we see like arranged marriages, it's normally of the type of, we think this is a good idea, and if you are willing. So there's still self-determination you know, at play in most of the quote-unquote arranged marriages of the scriptures. They are arranged, but they're, it's a willful arrangement. There's a difference between those things. Um, and, and I think that that's because, you know, they, you know at least culturally, there is a respect and fear of God in the situation. And when people respect, truly respect and fear God, they don't eliminate everybody's, you know, free decisions on everything. You understand what I'm saying with that? Like, that's not how our God is. Our God's not oppressive. We still have some options in our lives, just like we all have option to go sin today. There may be consequences for that sin, but you got the option to go do it. All right? You got the option to do good. You got the option of how much good you're going to do. I mean, I, I just made that real simple. If you if you got $100 in your pocket, you got an option to give zero, a dollar, ten, a hundred. And anywhere, anywhere between zero and a hundred, you have the option to give. Right? That's a, you know, your decision to be made before the Lord in relationship with him. So this is what I'm getting at here, that it was probable that, you know, she didn't know all she was getting into, that his flaws were, were hidden. And as she's married to him for not, probably not too very long, she starts to go, uh-oh. What, I mean, he's wealthy, but what have I done? He is a harsh and evil in his doings. And then it says... He was from the house of Caleb. And that's a particularly sad phrase. And why is that a sad phrase? Because Caleb was a a brave and noble servant of God. It was Joshua and Caleb who with the other spies went into the land. And when the other one said, "We, we can't go into God's promised land because we're going to get our tails whooped that Joshua and Caleb said, no, it's an awesome land, and God's given it to us. That's paraphrase. That's all paraphrase. You understand that, right? And so, Caleb, it says this about him in Numbers 14, 24, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Marcus, can I trouble you for a glass of water? You should grab me one real quick. My throat's uh, acting up. My servant Caleb. Now listen to what it says about him. 
Because he has a different spirit in him. That's such a beautiful phrase. What he's saying is, Caleb is not a common man. Caleb is not a common man. Thank you, Marcus. Caleb is not a common man because he has a different spirit in him. What does that mean? It means that he has pursued God. He is passionate for God. He loves God and he believes God. He's a man of faith. You see, he and and Joshua were different. When the other ones saw the obstacles, they saw the opportunity because they believed their God was greater than any obstacle. They believed they could defeat giants because their God was greater than any giants. And really, you see, that's... He has a different spirit in him. And I'm just going to say it like this, and, and you know, you can take it or leave it. But I believe Caleb has a different spirit in him because one day he decided to have a different spirit in him. He made a choice of how he was going to walk with God. You see, I think we do this a lot of times with people. And we do this with ourselves. We say, well, just who I am. And kind of this fatalism. Well, that person is just who God made them to be in that way. So they're all passionate about God. And he didn't give me that passion, so I'm not. not. Folks, that's not true. That's not how that works out. See, Caleb is passionate about God, I believe, because Caleb pursued God. That God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That Caleb has sought God and has put the hours in. He's put the work in to that relationship and therefore has the passion and a different spirit in him. He has a different spirit than those who were ambivalent toward God. Toward those who were lukewarm or cold towards God. He has a different spirit in him because he decided to have a different spirit within him. Because what I want us to understand in that is that that passion and that relationship with God that's on a different level is accessible to you and to me. It's accessible. It's not unattainable. But the question is, at what cost? Because there's always a cost. Caleb, we don't get a whole bunch of his story, but you know, it's not like with Jacob, we heard about last night. Not like Jacob, who you know, we know spent all night wrestling with God. You don't see that story you know with with Caleb and what all the details of that were but I guarantee you there's some details guarantee you there's details it's accessible but there's a price that has to be paid in order to have that quote unquote different spirit 
in, in order to have that passion and that love and that faith, that desire, that belief, that faith. So let's move along because, I mean, but the contrast is there and that's just where we have to pray for our kids and our grandkids and our future you know, descendants and the future of the church because just because Caleb had that spirit in him, you know, it didn't magically get passed down the navel. He didn't pop out and have it. He made his decisions. And his decisions led him to develop the character to be a man who did evil and to be harsh. So in verse 4, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them. All the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants than to your son David. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men whom I don't know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. <clears throat> so we see Nabal here. That he is prideful and that he is arrogant. See, he makes his argument, but based on what we've already seen in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that his argument is shallow. It's a weak argument. See, we need to have discernment. A lot of times, you know, people talk and they say something and it can be kind of like easy to agree with them. We need people to have discernment. You, like, we, we need to be people who can see through the bull. You, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? That we don't just take everything, at, what somebody is saying is like, oh, well, that's the whole truth. We need to have some discernment. Because who is David and who is the son of Jesse? As if anybody in Israel who didn't know who David was and what he had done. As if anybody in Israel didn't know, especially a man of Nabal's standing, of Nabal's standing, that any man that didn't know, or woman that didn't know, or child that didn't know, that David had killed Goliath and gave them victory over the Philistines. That David had saved cities that David had been merciful to Saul. See, they all knew those things. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He says, you know, there are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master as if David is like a common criminal. That's what that statement is. To him, to Nabal, David is just a common criminal. Common rebel. He's nothing special. I don't have to listen to him. 
sure he was also aware from his men if he had taken any care to listen at all that David's men had protected his shepherds. Because there were robbers and thieves and looking, you know, there's always been in life people looking for the easy buck. There's always people in the world who would rather take from somebody else's work than to do their own work. And it's incredible sometimes how much work they'll do just not to work, but to just steal from somebody else's work. There's always been people like that. And until Jesus comes back, folks, there always will be. We have a wicked, there's a wickedness in our world that looks to prey on the defenseless. It's kind of uh, odd how this happened. Yesterday morning, we got a knock on the door, and um, apparently we had signed up for, uh, Claire, well, not apparently, Claire had signed up for um, this, like, Amber Alert kit thing, right? So, because if you don't know this, like with the Amber Alert deal, you know, if somebody go, gets taken, you know, if you, you may get it on your phone, I get it on my phone, you get this alert that says, look out for this vehicle, these people, everything. A lot of times that information can take like six hours to get all the right information. Well, think about how far somebody can get in six hours in a car. You can go across a couple states in that amount of time. So you need to have all the information already. It's like you can just give it. You don't have to look for anything. You can just give it. But so apparently they think that they had tried to get a hold of us, but we have no, like our phones have not been contacted or whatever. And it's actually, I don't know how this happened, but it was the director who came by and said, hey, want to make sure you get your kit, which is really, really cool. She used to work for the Air Force and all this stuff. But she said something yesterday that was just so disturbing that, you know, we're, we're, you know we've, we're used to like this... Um, this awful and evil like grooming process that happens to get somebody into trafficking. Well, now, like in the Atlanta area, people are putting up, you know, signs like, great job for teenagers. Come to this address. They go to the address and get met with a gun. And how is this for wicked? People meeting young people and say, hey, why don't you guys, you know, come to a Bible study with us? That tactic is being used to kidnap young people. Saying, come to a Bible. Like, there's a depravity and a wickedness to that, to use the good thing of God in such a way. And I don't, y'all, listen. My prayer again, I've told you all this before. God, if they're going to repent, put it on their heart to repent now. If not going to repent, strike them down. People that do that sort of wickedness, that sort of depravity to destroy people's lives. I don't have any qualms about that. I don't have any qualms about that prayer. But, you know, Nabal doesn't care that David's men have kept his livestock and, and his servants 
from being on the wrong end of wicked people. He has no regard for that. It's of his own greed, and I, and I think we can safely say here as well that Nabal's motivations are his own greed, and he's picking a horse in the race, and he believes Saul's going to win. He's picking Saul's side in the situation. David's men, they says they turn on the heels. I mean, that's like a like they're shocked at the response. They're taken aback. They can't believe that this is how Nabal has responded to them. They didn't anticipate this. They anticipated like, Nabal's going to be like, thank you so much. And of course we'll share our plenty with you. They went back and told David, David said to his men in verse 13, and David said to his men, every man gird his sword. So every man put on his sword and David also put on his sword and about 400 men went, went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Good strategy. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day. All the time, we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all our household, for he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. Now this young man is bold. He's bold. I think we can assume a couple of things. One, he perceived the danger. Because he had been out there with David's men, and he knew these dudes don't play. At this point, David's men, like his 600 men, he's basically got special ops. You know, that, he's got that level you know, of you know, intense, trained fighting men at this point. These, these men have been tested. They're ready. So he knew that this wasn't going to be met well. He perceived that the risk of telling the truth was, was less than the risk of keeping silent. <laughs> He's in a rock and a hard place because like, you know, I'm going to say some really bad things about my employer and it's a little bit stronger relationship than just employer in those days. He could be beaten. He could be sent away, unemployed, destitute. Nabal, I'm sure, has some clout in the area, and he's going to have to go pretty far away to try to find any sort of work. But, you know, if, I think he perceived, well, if I tell the truth and all that happens, at least I, can, I might be able to get out of here with my life. But he also I think, perceived that Abigail was wise and understanding and knew what sort of a man she was married to. And that she was different than her husband. So this is verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. See, they do have some fun. They have some 
they have some resources. I don't care if that's today. Like if somebody's throwing a party and that's just what they've got on hand right there, they, they got some money, right? Like that's not, you already said he was wealthy, but I mean, today somebody throws, somebody goes and says, hey, we're going to have a party and I've got five, I've got five sheep prepared. That's money. That's significant today. That ain't no joke. So she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Sometimes, sometimes wise women have to do what they got to do. Even though, you know, what we teach in, 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 in situations about, you know, being a, a team and being honest and forthcoming. This situation, there's an exception here. She, she gotta, she's married to a dude who's going to get everybody killed. All right, so she's got to do what she has to do. She already lost respect, and he wasn't worthy of it to begin with. So there's that. Just sometimes you got to call it like it is, folks. So it was as she rode on the donkey that we, she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David is, is hot. He's got some fire in his eyes. This is the first time we see David's anger get the best of him. This is the first time you ever you see David like go beyond where he should be in terms of his level of intensity. <laughs> Because unfortunately, let's, I mean, we've got to be real about this. He's willing to let the innocent die with the guilty. Because the proper response in this situation was, Nabal's going to get his. Like, if you're going to do something, it should be to Nabal, to Nabal only, and then let somebody else run that, run that house. Now Abigail saw David, verse 23, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please not, my Lord, regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. Now notice Abigail's wisdom. First, her steps of humility. She... she quickly gets off her donkey. She falls on her face. She took responsibility that was not hers. She said, let the sin of my, you know, she says, let the sin of my husband fall on me. 
She pleads in that way. And she gave an honest assessment of her husband that he was a scoundrel and the truth of the situation that she did not say David's men, implying there would have been a different outcome if she had. Then she appeals to David's track record of justice and mercy, that you have not avenged your enemies with your own hand. And she's particularly talking about Israelites. Now, you know, God, God has used David to war against the Philistines. But it's like, you haven't gone after your own countrymen who have been against you. You haven't, you haven't tried to harm your brother, even though your brother has made himself your enemy. It's her argument there. She knew about how David had spared Saul the cave. Now, how does she know that? Well, remember... David's men and, and, their, and her shepherds, her enabled shepherds, in the field together. You can imagine the stories they told at night around the campfire. And, and David's men like, you're not going to believe. Like, let me tell you about David, our next king. That he had a chance just to take the kingdom. But wouldn't avenge himself. That word spread. She knew that story. Again, Nabal's faux innocence and, or ignorance of David's, who David is and his stature and all that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, she's exceedingly wise. And she says, And now this present, which your, verse 27, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my, my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. So she's referring to David as my Lord fighting the battles of the Lord. There's a difference in how those words are used there, right? And evil is not found in you though throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Y'all get that? You see what she's referring back to? What did David use to kill Goliath? But he used the sling, the, the stone, the rock from the sling flying out. And, and she says, that's how your enemies are going to be. I mean, this woman is wise. <laughs> I mean, that's a subtle thing, but that speaks to David. He remembers how he slung that, that stone. She said, your enemies are going to be like that, slung out. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that you have avenged yourself. But then when the Lord has dwelt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So he says, when God has given you everything, remember me, is what she says. She's wise. She's real wise. 
she understands that God has appointed David to be the next king of Israel. But her husband doesn't understand what God is doing. And has put his lot in, put his chips in with Saul. Abigail says, no, I know what the Lord's up to. I know what the Lord has promised David. And that's where I'm putting my future. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you have hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. David listens to reason. He listens to her, to Abigail's wisdom. That's just a lesson. That's just a lesson. Sometimes, you know, something happens and you get hot and perhaps you get hot, hotter than the situation you know, uh, calls for. And if somebody comes to you with wisdom and with reason, be willing to take a step back and cool down and listen and say, that's good counsel. I'll, I'll stand down. See, David could have been prideful. He said, you know, I told all my men what we were going to go do today. And I'm not going to listen to your pleas to try to get me something to, to do something different than I've already said I'm going to go do today. See, he could have been prideful. And that's the reality of it. Whenever we were confronted with truth, and that truth is contrary to what the path that we are on, we have the option to be prideful and continue on our path or to be humble, to listen to truth, and to step off that path of destruction and, and to where we need to be. We have that option, like David did here. But there's another side of that coin, and that side of that coin is Abigail has to be wise, and she has to be bold, and she has to be both. She was wise enough to understand the truth of the situation, but what if she wasn't bold? She was wise enough to understand the truth of the situation, but what if she wasn't bold? What would she have done? She said, look, any of y'all servants want to go with me? I'm out. Because David's going to come in and slaughter my husband and all these other, everybody who stays with him. Hey, you want to you go? I'm taking such and such road. We're going, I'm going to go back to my family and I'm going to have security there. I'm going to figure it out and start over later. If she hadn't been bold and she has a sense of responsibility for the other people in, in the house. She, has a she feels a responsibility to all of those families, all of those young men who are going to you know, leave a, a widow. 
all those children who were going to be fatherless. She felt a responsibility to that community. There will be hundreds of people affected by what would happen that day. So she was wise. She was wise and she was bold. See, we need that in our lives. We need to be wise to understand what is right and what is wrong and then the boldness to act on what is right. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. I keep going back to that verse. That verse... I, I know I've had that verse in my heart since, at least since I was a teenager. Because in many situations that's been contrary to my flesh. A lot of times my flesh is fearful. But God has not given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. Yes, be wise. Because wisdom without boldness, knowledge without boldness, it's just one big I told you so. You know, just one big I told you uh, could have told you that was going to happen. There's a better outcome when there's action. With that wisdom. Boldness. That wisdom. Now listen to this. Now, I, I'm, I, I kind of love this. I, you know, think what you might. Now verse 36, so Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. She had patience. I'm just going to wait till you can understand what I'm saying to you because right now you're intoxicated. You're drunk. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him about these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So he hears what's said. He basically has some sort of heart episode, some sort of heart attack or whatever, but it doesn't just take him out right there and then he lays there for ten days before the Lord finally like finally takes him out and this is the part about it because it can seem kind of harsh but Nabal like God judged the wickedness of Nabal's heart by taking out his heart God judged the wickedness of Nabal's heart It reminds us in our study of Romans, in Romans 12, 17 through 21, repay. Again, we had this last week with Saul. 
God sparing Saul in the cave is the same principle, repaying no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That needs to be our approach. You know, and, and our approach in that, because it goes on, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And, and again, it's one of, one of two things. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, when we respond in, with good to all the wicked in our world, what happens? One of two things happens. Either people repent of their sin and turn to the true and living God and start walking with Him. Changed hearts means changed homes, means changed communities, which means changed larger places, cities, countries. Changed hearts is what does that. Changed hearts. So that is one outcome. The other outcome is that people reject the grace and goodness of God and the opportunity they have to repent, and God strikes them down ultimately when it's all said and done. Hell is real. Those are the two outcomes. So we are in this privileged position where all we have to do, folks, is maintain love, truth, kindness, to do good, to tell the truth, to preach the gospel, to do all the good we can while we can. That's our deal in it. That's our deal in it. God is going to give justice. Because for each one of us, the justice of God meets us at the cross or at the throne. You understand that? The justice of God meets each one of us at the cross or at the throne. Much better to meet the justice of God at the cross. Because that's where Jesus paid our debt. But at the throne, for those who don't believe, that's the great white throne. There's different thrones, different judgments. But the one for those who don't believe is the great white throne judgment. And that's where they meet the wrath of God. The justice of that is the punishment versus the justice that is the grace at the cross. And our world, each person in our world has a decision to make of whether they want to meet the justice of God at the cross or at the throne. But we have a responsibility to tell the truth to our world that they will meet the justice of God either at the cross or at the throne. That that is a reality. That that is a reality And that they need to take it while they can. They need to take that opportunity while they can. It impresses upon us the urgency of the gospel. Because no one is guaranteed tomorrow. There needs to be an urgency with the gospel. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said... Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded 
the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. You know, when, when a dude dies, there's, there's like, I think, an appropriate time of like mourning, you know, before the lady like starts to entertain offers from, an, an offer from another person, right? In this case, there doesn't t- say how many days there were between. I don't anticipate there were very many or that there needed to be. Yeah, I don't think she was like, in all black for weeks and like crying big, you know, tears and mourning and not eating and like you would do over the the death of somebody you really loved. She probably had a great, this is terrible to say, but she probably had a great sense of relief that that man was dead and she was no longer obligated to live with him. That sounds harsh. And so here's the deal. Dudes, never be, you never want to be the dude whose wife, if you die, is just like, praise the Lord. <laughs> like, that's, like, if, if you think, if you ever think, like, my wife might have that idea, if I die, she might be real happy, it's time to make some changes in how you approach your marriage, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's been long, you need, you need to go, like, get some big time help. You can get some big time help. And there's probably some big time repentance that needs to happen. <laughs> but hey, we're equal opportunity here. So wives, if you think your husband might have that same thought, same thing is true. Same thing's true. Just saying. It's what we have here in the scripture. I didn't write, I mean, it's in the lesson today, folks. I didn't write, come up with it. I mean, it's, it's right here. It's pretty obvious how this goes. So she was more than happy with that arrangement. And it's interesting, you know, and I think in that it seems like David then <laughs> receives every, pretty much everything that Nabal had. Um, I'm not sure all the details of how that all played out. But he got what was most important. He got a, the, the wife who had wisdom. Now, we're going to read... The, the, the rest of this because it would be nice if we could just stop at verse 42 I would love it if the chapter just stopped at verse 42 just stop at verse 42 please 43 David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and so both of them were his wives but Saul had given Michael his daughter David's wife to Palti the son of Laish who was from Galam okay now because of what Saul had done in terms of giving his, his wife his first wife, Saul's daughter, to another man. And, and you don't, we, don't see, we don't see Michael like, had you know, escaped and run away from that situation, went and found David and stayed with him. Like, she's not trying too hard. I'm just going to put it 
to you that way. She's not trying too hard to be states to stay faithful to David. That that all has been broken. David would have been far better off in his life if he had just stuck with Abigail and been content. Let's just be real clear. He would have avoided a lot of pain and misery. There's a lot of pain and misery that we read through the generations that would have been avoided if David had just been like, I've got one wise, beautiful woman, and that's all I need. Amen? Will that preach? If said, if the, if, I mean, if, the, if David had just said, all I need is one wise, beautiful woman, I have her. Her name's Abigail. I don't need any others. That had been far better for tens of thousands of people throughout history. Because God had said, a man shall be joined to his wife. Singular. And the two, not three, not four, not five, not however many, the two shall become one flesh. The two. See, God's math is two can become one, but he doesn't go to like three and four and five and six. Two. That's his plan. And there was a lot of destruction that happened. Now, did God's grace still override all of those bad decisions of David and others throughout history to still bring Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, onto this earth to die for our sins and to be risen from the dead? Absolutely. Did God need David's sins to accomplish that? No, he didn't. See, God's will gets done whether we are obedient or disobedient, it's just a lot smoother for us and the people we love and for future generations if we're obedient. God's still going to get his done. You see, man gets to decide whether how difficult he wants to make it. You know, you want to make it. But, but God's still going to do his. He's still going to do his will. So we either get to be on board with that or fight against that. We get to either enjoy that fully of walking with the Lord and enjoying his pleasure and his goodness, or we get to resist that and go along kind of kicking and screaming and fighting. But God's still going to get his. And, and here's this. What does the scripture say? He who's begun a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Even if he got to take you home early. Even if he's got to take me home early. God's still going to finish his work. At the end of the day, each one of us who know Jesus, when we see Jesus face to face, we're going to be like him. And our sin's going to be all done with. But the question is, how much do I get to be like him before I get to see him face to face? Do I get to look a little bit more like him before I see him face to face? Or I get to, I ain't look nothing like him, and then I see him face to face, and then I become like him? You see the difference? Which is greater joy for me? Which is greater joy for you? Which is greater joy? God having to take you out early to get you to heaven. And for you to basically have nothing to lay at his feet as a thank you for what he did for us. Or to live passionate for God, to live like Caleb, have a different spirit within you, and to enjoy 
this life with God. That's our choice, folks. That's my choice. That, that we can decide what, what kind of life we want to live with that. See, God still is gracious and he works through all of David's mess and there's more mess to follow. He gets himself in a world of mess. But doggone it, folks, we don't have to do that. We don't have to make those sort of messes. We just don't. You know, if I'm... If I'm I, I just throw this out there. If, if I go and break my wife's heart and my kids' hearts... Because I get distracted and undisciplined. Don't anybody think, well, I just had to do that. That is crazy. You know, God, well, you know, don't be like, oh, well, you know, God works through all the mess and, you know, you know, da 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 da, and He's going to bring glory through all this. No, kick my behind. Like, that is some nonsense. That is some nonsense. Yes, God is gracious, but we have gone so far. We try to make the grace train a gravy train. You understand what I'm saying? To where, what Paul said of, should I continue to sin that grace may abound? Well, what the church says today, heck yeah. Yeah, I should. Because that grace is there, and there are very few people who are going to preach the truth to actually make me feel bad about my sin. And if somebody starts making me feel bad about my sin, well, there's a hundred other churches I can go to where nobody's going to make me feel bad about my sin. I can just go join the like extra super more stupendous grace group. And so, because there's a, like, understand what I'm saying. If you're on the back end of the sin where you've all committed it, and it's done, like that stuff, yeah, grace. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we got to preach that, and you know we preach that all the time. Like God's grace cleanses, makes us clean, washes us white as snow. You're new. Continue on with your life. But on the front end where we fail... As we don't preach enough, stop having to pray that all the time. That's where we fail. That's where we fail is that we on the front end don't preach hard enough about being wise and disciplined and doing the hard work to not get in the mess in the first place. To not get in the mess in the first place. And I know I'm going long this morning. We started late, so I'm just going to go ahead and take the late. But listen, that's, we, we got to stop with that mess. We went and heard uh, Michael Tuttle last night. He's a pretty intense dude. I love him. Um, but he gave a story about this guy came up to him and said, you know, it's all in Spanish, but basically the guy says he has this problem, and it's this woman. And he's like, do you understand my problem? He's like, and Michael Tuttle's like, yes, you're sleeping with this woman who's not your wife. And the guy's like, oh, okay, you understand. You understand the problem. And nobody can help me. He's like, nobody can help me. Like, I, 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 you know, I keep going to these different Christians and different leaders and stuff and saying, can you help me? You know, get, and, and nobody can seem to, like, I can't, 
like, I don't want to keep doing it, but I keep, I keep ending up in her house, and I keep, you know, doing what I'm doing with her, and da da da. And Micah says, okay, I, well, I can stop that. Well, I can help you. I can help you stop. He's like, okay, really? He's like, yeah. Let's pray. He starts praying, and he's like, okay, Father God, I just pray the next time this man goes in this house to sleep with this woman that you'll just strike him dead. And the guy's like, whoa, 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 push him away. Like, what are you doing? What are you praying? It's like, I'm praying that God will strike you dead the next time you'll, you'll, you go do that. Because you want to you stop, right? You want to stop. And the guy's like, I mean, you're serious about this. You know, Mike says to the guy, you're serious about it. The guy says, yeah, I'm, I'm serious. I'm not that serious. I'm not that serious. You see, and, and what he exposed was the truth. That might sound extreme to you. That might sound out there to you. But he suppose was the truth. The truth was, that man didn't, he knew it was wrong, but he didn't want to stop. He didn't actually want to stop. <coughs> Folks, I believe that each of us aren't that different from that man. <coughs> We all have our issues. You know that song? The kids are singing today. Maybe I got issues and don't judge me because if you judge me, I'll judge you. You know what what song I'm talking about? Some of you know what song I'm talking about. You know how I know this song? Because our kids' elementary school talent show, a girl sang that song, and all the kids, like third, at least second grade, third grade and up, were singing right along with it. I've got issues. And like the biggest one's you, and don't judge me, and if you judge me, I'll judge you. And all, I mean, it's, it's like truthful and nonsense and, and sad and everything at the same time. But I'll just say there's a truth line in there, and it's like, we have to deal with our issues. You know, we don't get to deal with, you know, they're dealing with, the way in that song of dealing with the issues is just like not dealing with them. I just got issues, and you know, that's just how it is. But you see, Jesus doesn't do that with us. He didn't want to just leave us in our mess. He didn't go die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead so that we could just stay in our sin and keep living in our mess. He, he, he did it so he could, he could cleanse and purify his church and that we would walk holy with him. That's what he did for us. That's what God did for us. It's great. It's grace. And yes, I will be the first to say, I'm going to mess up along the way. And you're going to mess up along the way. I'm just, let, let's not be frivolous with that. Let's not be ambivalent with that. Let's be serious about that. And when we sin and mess up, let's be grieved. You see, when we come and take that bread and cup this morning, there's some different emotions that we can have that are right to have. I, I'm sad a lot of times when I break the cup that, that my sin was that grievous before God that that was the cost. I'm grieved at times over my sin. I'm grieved over sin that I've committed even that week that I know better. And I did it anyway. And so there should be that. And there should be a thankfulness. And there should be a joy. You know, you may look like somebody stole your lunch money when you go in that first process. You may look sad and upset. 
when you start that process before you take the bread and the cup. But by the time we've gotten to actually take the bread and cup, we've confessed our sins and he's cleansed us from all unrighteousness and we stand before him fresh, pure, and clean when you take that bread and that cup. And when you walk out that door this morning, you see, here's the thing. If you've done your business with, with God, even before you came, I mean, of course, anywhere you are, you can confess your sin, but this calls us to account because the scripture tells us before you take the bread and the cup, make sure you, you know, do your business with God. So every person who knows Jesus when walking out of here on a Sunday morning should walk out feeling clean. You should walk out not burdened with guilt and sin and feeling terrible about the things you had done during the week and the past. No. That was crucified with Christ. It has been put in the grave. It has been sent as far as the east is from the west. It's done. Let it go. Get, I mean, gone. Walk out that door knowing that you are holy if you've done what you're supposed to do in here. That you are holy and pure before God and have a mission with him. Understand that when you walk out the door. And that you have started fresh. Now, it can only take about a minute or two to get, get <laughs> more dirt on you. Don't get me wrong. But you start clean. And so what I'm emphasizing here is just like, Man, I, I want to stay clean. We want to, you want to stay clean and get as little dirt on us throughout the week as possible before we come back and do that again. So purity becomes more part of our normal. Good weeks start to become more of our normal than bad weeks. And that even as we take it week to week, you know, like that, that we're not grieved all the time about the sin that we committed the previous week or since the last time we were here. Because we've been keeping short accounts with God and we haven't let it pile up and we've taken care of things when they were little so it didn't get to the really gross, nasty stuff. Okay? You understand what I'm getting, getting at? So we haven't gotten too deep in the mess. But this is the Lord's table. And just got to say that this morning. It's the Lord's table. It's not my table. It's not your table. It's, your, it's the Lord's table. And that's where our focus has to be as we take the Lord's table is on the Lord. Like we have that, you know, we have to look at ourselves. We have to ask God to examine us. We have to confess our sins. But Jesus is the main one here. We're remembering his death and his resurrection and his return and how his life blesses us. Now, there's part of that story where we celebrate, hey, here's what God's done in my life. But we just got to be careful that the emphasis is at the end of the day is still on Jesus. And I just want to make that really clear and for us to understand that this morning. Because I want you to imagine, I'll give you two scenarios. One, you go to a funeral. Fred has died. But the funeral was all about Billy. The funeral was all about Billy. But it was Fred who died. But Billy takes a show and talks about himself for an hour. Not about Fred. 
What do people think when they walk away from that funeral? Was that a little odd? I thought we went to the funeral for Fred, but all we did was talk about Billy. Billy was the star of the show. Or you go, went to a wedding, and there was a couple getting married, but there was a groomsman, third groomsman over, and the whole wedding was about him, and you know, in the speech, he mentioned the groom like once and talked about himself for 25 minutes. People were like, that's a little odd. Wouldn't you think that would be a little odd? You'd be like, huh. I thought we went to the wedding for the, the, the bride and the groom, and, but it seemed like the groomsman didn't get the memo that, that it wasn't his day. It's Lord's Day. You read the scripture time and time again. They came together on the Lord's Day. It's his. This is his time. We take the bread and the cup. We're not remembering. We're thankful for those who are martyred for the faith, but we're not here for Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts. We're not meeting for Stephen. We love Stephen. I can't wait to talk to him in heaven. Can't wait. But we're not here to remember him. He didn't die on the cross for our sins. He didn't rise from the dead. Jesus did that. We're here for Jesus. So that's just my point. When we sing, we sing to Jesus for Jesus. When we pray, it's for Jesus. When you share a testimony or something that God did in your life this week, it needs to point us to Jesus. Because we have all that other time during the week, house fellowship. I mean, you can stay in my house. I really don't care. If it's, I won't say this for everybody's house that you meet in for house fellowship, like for here on out. But in my house, you want to sit there. You need to, you need to talk about your life. And, and you need prayer. And, you know, we're going to pray for my cousin who has cancer and all those things. We're going to do that. We can do that. But this time... It's the Lord's. And I just want to remind us of that this morning. It's His. It's His. And I just want us to be, listen, my heart, I, I want us to be a church that we're Jesus' church. That everything else is secondary to that. We're Jesus' church. So we just love to meet with Jesus. I mean, I'd love that to drive us crazy sometimes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In terms of like, man, it seems all we do is just love on Jesus. Don't you want to be a part of church? It's like, it seems all we do is love on Jesus because he loves us so much. If we just live, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'm just telling you, our lives so much more enjoyable with the Lord and so much less pain if we just be obedient to Jesus. There's a song, and I don't want to be too harsh this morning on anything, but the lyrics say, like, you know, if you want to steal my show. And I, and I just wanted to say, it's not my show. It's not your show. It's always been his. It's always been his show. 
It's always been his. That's the reality. Let's live like it. Jesus, there are not enough. There are a lot of books in this room right now, Jesus. There aren't enough pages that could list my failures, my hypocrisy. my inadequacy. (gasps) Chapters could be written about my lukewarmness. And all I can ask you for, Jesus, is the strength for us to lay ourselves down. To feel your conviction. To know your conviction. To be made whole and clean before you to be given the capacity to be given the place to enjoy you more fully because there isn't junk in the way So as we take that bread and that cup this morning, Jesus, we acknowledge this is your church. That we are yours. That you are the Savior and the King. You are great and mighty. And you are worthy for us to lay ourselves down and to exalt you on high. Jesus, you said that apart from you that I am nothing, that we are nothing. We acknowledge that truth this morning. But help us not just to acknowledge it, but to live in it, to embrace it. And Jesus, not to let go of your feet. We thank you as we take the bread and the cup. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name.